0: You're listening to the Sermon Audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.
1: Good morning, Mill Creek. My name is Nathan Eberline, and I'm one of the elders here. Uh, Will you please join me? We're going to read Genesis 20, verses 1 through 18 today, and that's page 10 in the Chairback Bibles. Verse 1. From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and ox and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before every one you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Will you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that we can be here today uh, to praise and worship you. Um, As we sang earlier, uh, awake our souls, uh, prepare us to uh, give you our best, uh, open our hearts and our minds to hear your word and to learn from it. Please let your Holy Spirit rest upon us and teach us. Uh, Please do the same on Jeremy and help him to speak truth uh, and to teach us your ways. We thank you again for your blessings, Lord, and in Jesus' name I pray, amen.
0: There are moments when we sin terribly, when our sin is either confessed, we share what we've done with someone, or our sin is discovered. We didn't necessarily mean for it to be, but it got out there. And those times where we sin terribly, they're devastating. It can be devastating for us. It's devastating for those. we did it, but it's created this sin tsunami. There's times we sin, but there's also times when other people sin. Sometimes it's people close to us. And they either confess their sin or their sin is discovered. Either situation when that sin is brought out of the dark and into the light, the consequences are devastating. It can feel overwhelming. For those who are genuine followers of Jesus... For any in here would say, Yes, I'm going to follow the way of the Lord. I am completely convinced if you're serious in wanting to follow Jesus and there is secret sin happening, it is coming out. It's just, are you going to confess it or is it going to be discovered? But make no mistake, sin is devastating. I had a friend who told me that as a teenager, he had started walking with Jesus. And as he's walking with Christ, he had this youth pastor walking along next to him, encouraging him to follow Jesus. And having surrendered to Jesus, he found himself in a situation where baptism was the next step. And so in front of the church, he got baptized and it was incredible and encouraging until just a couple weeks later it came out that the youth pastor had been having an affair. And it put so many people on tilt, not least of which is my buddy who was scratching his head wondering, is my baptism legitimate? Because look at what this guy did. He's the one telling me to follow Jesus and he's not even following Jesus. Do I need to do this whole thing again? Another one of my friends... married, a couple kids, started meeting with someone in the church who had just been quite honest and said, look, man, seems like internet porn is just crushing Christian church. Let's be the kind of people who are honest. And this person started sharing the ways they were struggling. My friend says, yeah, me too. I haven't told anybody. I've never physically had an affair with somebody else, but I've really struggled. Um, But I also, my friend said, want to say it's, I struggle with same-sex attraction, and so that's sort of where I go in that dark world. The consequences of that confession were difficult as sin was brought into the light and then spouse was told and this couple was serving in very influential places in the church and left folks scratching their head going is is there a place for people who are broke and sinful in these ways to be in a church time doesn't permit me to tell all the stories you probably know some too even of People in positions like me who might preach regularly and have sin that goes unconfessed, unconfronted. and in some stories, you hear of a pile of dead bodies behind the church bus as that pastor sin has ran over, so many people metaphorically speaking. And my guess is, though, if you're really following Jesus, you already know how devastating sin can be because you've been guilty yourself, and you've felt and this sin is really awful. In our text today, we come face to face with a devastating sin by none other than God's handpicked man, Abraham, and what's going to happen in our text is first we're going to be humbled by what happens in Genesis 20, and then encouraged in Genesis 20. For any here, then, feeling overwhelmed or devastated by your sin, for anyone who has walked in here feeling like a sin tsunami has somehow swept over your life, two truths from Genesis 20 that can anchor you. First, God's people can be more sinful than good pagans. Second, God's plan can't be thwarted by your sin. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you go to Genesis 20 so that you can see that the way we preach around here isn't my agenda, it's not your agenda. The agenda we have is God's agenda, and we're just going to walk through the book of Genesis like we've been doing for the last several months and see what God wants to tell us in Genesis 20. Here's the first big idea from our text. God's people can be more sinful than good pagans. So as you make your way to Genesis chapter 20, keep in mind where we're at in this story. Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 11 were told that You are going to father a nation. And for all of these chapters, in fact, 35 years, we've been watching as Abraham first might have thought, maybe it's going to be Lot. And then Lot takes off. Then he thinks, maybe it's going to be Eleazar. That's who's going to be my heir. Not Eleazar, Abraham. In Genesis 16, Abraham thinks, maybe it's going to be Ishmael. No, Abraham, Ishmael's not going to be the heir. But Sarah can't have babies. God comes to Abraham in Genesis 7. He comes to Sarah in Genesis 18 and says, you will have a baby. And it's one year away. So having walked this path for 34 years, they have been waiting on the promise of God to come true. Abraham's 65 when he got that promise in Genesis 12. He's now 99. His wife is 89, which is why that baby is going to be named Laughter, because it's funny. Here's... Abraham, he's on the last mile of a marathon. He's gone over the tough hills. You can almost see the finish line right there. And what does Abraham do in the text? Verse 1, he moves to Philistine country. Uh, Maybe he's nesting and preparing for the baby. Maybe, I've heard that's a thing, whatever. But if verse 1 isn't weird enough, look what happens in verse 2. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now we find out in Genesis 20 that those in Gerar, this is actually Philistine country. And if you're familiar with your Bible, you know that the Philistines are a problem with the Israelites for centuries. Goliath, quite the problem as a Philistine to the Israelites. But the problem in Genesis 20 isn't the Philistines, the problem in Genesis 20 is Abraham. He he does not believe God will protect him in this foreign country and out of a lack of faith because of his wrong fear he takes matters into his own hands and says, hey be sure you tell everybody you're my sister. He's doing this just like he did in Genesis 12 when he was in Egypt with Pharaoh, you might remember. It's a lie. Actually, Pastor, it's not a lie because you can find later on that they're actually really half brother and half sister because of dad and blah, 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 blah. blah. Wrong. Anyone with integrity knows a half truth is a full lie. And so what does king of Gerar do when he finds out, in his view, that this Sarah is available? Oh, she's not married? He adds Sarah to his harem. But then a dream, 3b, God says to king Abimelech, this pagan, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken for she is a man's wife. What? King Abimelech now has learned a crucial truth from God. And we as readers learn a crucial truth from the text. Even though King Abimelech had taken Sarah with these intentions of knowing her, biblically speaking, he has not yet been intimate with her. Which leads to King Abimelech's response. Look in verse 4. But wait. Wait. Are you going to kill me, God, when I am innocent? By the way, God's warning here is not just that King Abimelech is going to get it, but all his people will be destroyed too. So Abimelech saying, "Wait, you're going to destroy all of us and we didn't even do anything?" I find that fascinating that the Philistine king seemed to know enough about God to know that's not how God acts. God is not going to punish Abimelech, when he had integrity, which is what he says in verse 5 from the text, did Abraham not himself say to me, she's my sister, and she herself say, he is my brother, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to King Abimelech in the dream, yeah, I know you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I didn't let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. Remember that, we'll come back to it. Abraham is a prophet, God says, so that he, Abraham, will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know, King Abimelech, that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Again, I find this fascinating. God sovereignly kept King Abimelech from sinning. It's sovereign mercy. Sovereign meaning God is in control of everything, and mercy meaning God is kind in how he's dealing with this pagan king. Sovereign mercy in control of all our decisions. God's sovereign mercy, God who did not need to give King Abimelech a choice, King Abimelech did not deserve a choice. God, in his sovereign mercy, gives the king a fork in the road. There's two ways you can go, bro. You can keep doing what you want, and you will die. Or you can obey me and live. Well, this warning literally puts fear in the heart of King Abimelech, because he wakes up early in the morning, and look, he makes two calls. Look in the text, two calls, verse 8, Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Circle that word afraid in your Bible if you want, or put that on the back burner in your mind. The servants are afraid. Nine, then Abimelech called Abraham and said to Abraham, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Look how serious. Pagan King Abimelech is taking the warning of God. He's up early and he's doing something about it. He knows God's word literally is life or death. And he takes it to heart. Contrast that with Abraham, verse 11. Abraham said, I did it because I thought... There is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. 13. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to my wife, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he's my brother. In these three verses, 11, 12, and 13. We see blame shift. Blame shift, which some of you may remember was what happened in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve were confronted with their sin. This is actually, in my view, our author trying to go, look how Abraham is acting just like Adam and Eve. Verse 11, the reason I had to do this is not my fault. It's really your fault because y'all don't even fear God. It's your problem, not my problem. Justification. From verse 12, it's not really my fault that this all happened because it's kind of true. It's kind of true, you see? Shifting from verse 13, the only reason I have to do this is because God made us wander into different lands where people like, you might kill me because my wife so fly. It's not really my fault. It's because God told us we have to go wander around this world. What we see when we contrast King Abimelech with Abraham is called irony. Irony is a literary device when the author intentionally shows two very different responses and the person who you would expect to respond in God's way doesn't and the person you don't intend or expect to respond God's way does. What we see here is irony, especially in relation to fear of God. Remember a moment ago when I told you to remember that the servants were very much afraid, verse 8? King Abimelech demonstrates his fear because he's up early in the morning trying to make this wrong thing right, and even his servants, these pagan Philistines, they're afraid of what God will do. But you know who doesn't seem to have any fear in this text, or who doesn't have the right fear? God's man, Abraham. Here's what should get our attention. God's man, responding the wrong way. Pagan king, responding the right way. Abraham, frankly, is responding a lot like Lot and his two daughters, if you were here last week. Or if you want to read the text, verse 30 to 38. Lot and his two daughters, they leaned into self-preservation. And they had to do whatever they had to do to serve and save themselves. And what we saw last week is self-preservation. It leads to self-destruction. And that's what's going to happen to Abraham if he's not careful. That's what's going to happen to King Abimelech. If he's not careful, that's why God has warned him. But maybe you're here and you're going... Look, man, I get it, Abraham's a dork for what he did here, but I'm just really not connecting with this sin of calling a spouse a sibling. And, and I grant that I have not had any pastoral appointments in my tenure as a pastor anywhere when somebody says, can you just please meet with us? My spouse and I do this thing where we call each other siblings in front of people because we're afraid we're going to die, and we just need some counseling <laughs> to walk through that. So I grant this does feel weird to us. And while the sin that Abraham's guilty of may feel foreign to us, here is what ought to feel familiar, is sin's response. Our response to sin is often self-justification and defensiveness. And if you've not experienced this, when somebody sits down and confronts you, and then you go, no, 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 you don't understand. That's not my motive. That's, that's not what's really going on. Actually, I was trying to do this really good thing, and I thought, maybe I'll have some sin to, because I really want this really good thing. It's all self-justification, self-preservation. In fact, Pastor Marty was telling me that in counseling, when he's visiting with somebody and a person starts justifying all their self-protecting strategies, he's learned from experience and training that self-justifying, self-preservation language is revealing there is a deep fear in the heart of this person, and they are trying to make sense of it, but they're doing it the wrong way. Fear often fuels self-justification, and so it is here. I think if Abraham would have walked into the counseling ministry by God's grace, somebody would have listened to his story and said, I think you're afraid, bro. You're afraid that when push comes to shove, you can't trust God with your life in a pagan land. A question by implication for us today, church. What are you afraid of? And what are you afraid that God's not going to come through for you in? King Abimelech has confronted Abraham, and Abimelech has decided when faced with the path of life or the path of death, he chooses life, and then he gives Abraham all of these flocks and servants. Most importantly, he gives Sarah. Verse 15, he tells Abraham, live anywhere you want in my country. And then King Abimelech's final words in this chapter, look at verse 16. I think it's a little passive-aggressive slap on the head to Abraham. A little gotcha moment. To Sarah he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. He's your brother, huh? Is that what you're going to call him? Fine. I'll call him your brother too. I wonder if in heaven someday we meet Sarah, if we go, oh, I met your brother. (laughs) Too soon? Yeah. (laughs) To Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver, which I learned that would take 150 years for regular workers like you and I to earn. It's a lot of silver. I've given you a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. This is the cultural way of saying, look, I'm going to make a huge gift to this family. And it proves I am innocent and she is pure. And so let everyone know there has been no knowing of one another. Abimelech... He's a good example of a man who gets confronted by God and takes God's word to heart. He knows it's life or death. He obeys right away and in this text, in this situation, the pagan king obeys more than Abraham which proves the whole point I've been arguing here. God's people can be more sinful than good pagans. Here's the application I'd love for you to take away from this section. Just because you're in God's family doesn't mean you won't seriously sin. And I'd like for you to get that. Just understand. Just because you're in God's family, I'm in God's family, man. I've, been, I've believed the gospel, I've, I've repented of my sins, I've been baptized following conversion. Man, I am in the people of God. Just because you're in God's family doesn't mean you won't seriously sin. And I think this is so important for us because church, too often, our theology of sin is really goofy, if not just totally wrong. Too many times we have people who believe the gospel, and I felt it too, especially in my time as a youth pastor with teenagers, They come to know Jesus, they believe the gospel, they go into the water, they come out, and then they're struggling with sin not so long later, and they're scratching their head and they're going, What happened? Where did I go wrong? Did did it not take? Is Jesus not real? Is my belief in the gospel not sufficient? Was the water faulty? Like, what's the problem here? Because I'm still struggling with sin. What we got to get is that when we come to know Christ... We are not immediately transformed and totally perfect. When you come to know Christ, does not mean your days of serious sin are behind you. They may be in front of you. I pray that's not the case, but we need to understand just because we're in the family doesn't mean we won't seriously sin. Each of us is so impacted by the fatal disease of sin That there is no sin some pagan might commit out there that isn't possible for us in here. You may think to yourself, no, 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 pastor, I would never do that thing. Baloney. You are just as much capable of that sin as anybody. Because sin doesn't come from outside of us, sin comes from inside of us. And it's frankly, it's the sin of pride that whispers in your ear, oh, I would never do that. That's so deceived your heart, you're actually believing a lie that you're somehow better than everybody else out there. No, same sin that's crushing that person, it crushes us as well. Beware. Sin is so deceptive. It gets into our hearts and makes us think, oh, no, I would, I would never do that. But just talk to any Christian who really believes Jesus has committed some serious sin, wherever we want to draw that line, and ask them, hey, by the way, when you woke up that morning, were you thinking, I hope to light my light off, my whole life on fire, and I just want to destroy everybody around me and burn it all down? Like, you know people who've crashed and burned, right? Just ask them, was that your goal? No. They're going to say, I, of course not, I didn't. But then I started believing the lies of the enemy, and like all of a sudden I was eating the forbidden fruit, and all of a sudden I'm crashed and burned. Well, pastors, you talk to a pastor who's, who starts out good, and then whatever happens, they get, they get fired because of their sin issues. I've never met a pastor on the other side of it say, I woke up one day and I was really bored and I thought, I'm just going to drive my life off a cliff. You know what? I'm just going to take my family with me. I'll take the church with me. I'm just going to destroy all the good stuff that God has seemed to be doing. And I'm just going to, I'm going to ruin it all. Nobody thinks like that. I, I'm, I'm explaining it this way because I want you to wake up to the seriousness of sin. Because one of the ways our theology can also be wonky is we think to ourselves, well, that's the real bad sin stuff, but this stuff is not so bad. Wrong. All sin is deadly. So beware if you're in here, and you may be on the verge of sexual sin like King Abimelech was. And while you may wish for God to visit you in a dream, if you're on the verge of sexual sin, maybe this is a Genesis 20 moment for you right now. Beware. Beware. Or maybe that's not your issue. Maybe you're more like Abraham. You're putting someone you love into a situation of sexual temptation. For any who might be involved in pornography or asking somebody you love to watch pornography with you. For any who are in a secret affair, be warned. For any in here who have had an affair and you thought you buried that thing and you've told yourself, I will never bring it up, that isn't the way it works. And if you're going to follow Jesus, that thing's coming out. It's going to come out sooner or it's going to come out later. It's going to come out the easy way or it's going to come out the hard way. But you've got to decide are you going to be honest about what's going on with your sin issue? For those struggling with same sex attraction, your sexual identity, deciding even in these moments and weeks and months, am I going to go God's way or am I going to go in the way of the world? Hear a warning. You need to be honest with what's going on in your heart. And a very easy next step for you would be to find a few people to share your sin with. A few people you love and trust who you could say, there's this thing that has been in the dark. I haven't told anybody about it, but here it is. And if you're thinking, Pastor, I don't even know where to start with that. We have life groups here, we have mentors who want to meet with you, we have Biblical counseling that we offer free to you, it's confidential. If you're hearing some of this though and you think, your heart rate is racing and you're aware, man, my sin is serious, but I just, I can't imagine, I can't imagine the devastating impact that confessing this sin might have. You're right. There may be some devastating consequences, but there's devastating consequences whether you share it or not. I know this, you won't be shamed here. In fact, look at God in this text. He does not shame Abraham. He doesn't look down his nose at Abraham and go, Are you kidding me? Oh, my word, Abraham, give me a break. No. The Lord, his covenant love remains to Abraham. And consider, if you're feeling afraid of sin, how Jesus responds to those who are broken in the New Testament. How does Jesus respond to those who have a broken and contrite spirit? He is gentle and lowly, come all who are weary and heavy laden." Make no mistake, Jesus does get harsh, but He gets harsh with hypocrites, those whitewashed tombs who don't admit they have dead bones in their heart. If you're feeling deep shame, hear the heart of God for you. God loves you because of His covenant through Jesus, not because of your actions. Well, at this point of the text, we've seen a lack of fear has led Abraham to sin by lying. Good fear has led King Abimelech to obedience. But for the original listeners getting this message, they would have understood this truth. God's people are messed up. Like God's people are really messed up. Which if you're a guest with us or you don't know Jesus and you kind of wonder, how do you all think about yourselves? You all think you're too good? No, 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 we messed up really messed up. That truth is humbling, but it leads us to the second truth from this text, which is encouraging. Here, the last point of this sermon, God's plans can't be thwarted by sin, drawn from verse 17 and 18. Look with me in the text. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now, first time I read this, I just skimmed over it. And if that's how you do Bible reading plan, man, me too. And it can be quick to think, hmm, nice little bow to the end of a weird chapter. Moving on. Not so fast. Consider this question. Based on how these two characters behaved in this text... Abraham versus Abimelech, who had integrity and ought to be praying for the person who was a liar. Generally speaking, in such a situation, who would we go, you better ask that person to pray for you because of what you did. Our author knows this and reveals this great twist. What in the world is Abraham doing praying for that cat? He's the one who was the pattern to follow. And it's called irony again. Irony. A deliberate contrast to help readers consider something. And this is not the only irony in the text that Abraham, despite all his issues, is praying for Abimelech. We've also considered how Abraham is called a prophet by God. I told you to remember that earlier from verse 7. You remember that? He's called a prophet. How is it that the prophet of God is making such a mess of situations? It's irony. And the final piece of irony is this. There's all these pagan Philistine women who can no longer have children. And they are healed. And how does God heal them? Abraham's prayers. And remember, this whole storyline, who has been unable to have a baby? Sarah. What, Abraham's prayers aren't going to work on Sarah, but they're going to work on the pagans? This is... A deliberate contrast. Those three ironic parts of our text that I want you to see. And here's why I'm nerding out on this so much. This is why this is so encouraging. Think about this. On what basis is Abraham called a prophet? On what basis is Abraham commanded to pray for Abimelech? To what do we attribute the answered prayer The answer, of course, is it's because what God decided. Abraham wasn't self-appointing himself a prophet. God did it. And Abraham's not going, I better pray for you now because I really blew it. No, God's telling Abraham to pray for And I'm wondering if Abraham's ears are a little bit red when he says, "Uh, should we pray, everybody? They're like, are you? (laughs) You pray for me? Yeah, that's what God said. Go ahead and do it this time. (laughs) On what basis are all these women healed and able to have kids the reason... That Abraham is designated a prophet and called to pray for Abimelech, and the reason that Abraham's prayers are answered has nothing to do with Abraham and his behavior, and it has everything to do with God. Even though Abraham is far more sinful in our text than King Abimelech, Abraham's sin will not thwart God's promises. I'm going to go throw a chair through that window. I'm so excited right now. (laughs) Get this, church. Sin is awful. And it can be devastating. And it can feel like a tsunami that you've created or somebody else has created. And yet, despite our sin, we are not so powerful as to cancel God's plan with our sin. Instead, God will preserve his promises despite all our sin. And that's good news. And that's what the irony is pointing us to. Here's the application. Write this down, please. Understand, you don't have to arrive to be used by God. You don't have to hit some righteousness threshold after which God says, phew, you finally made it to 60 units of spiritual righteousness. I can finally use you. You've been on the sideline the whole time, knucklehead. There is no righteousness threshold to attain before God will use you. And this isn't the only place we see it, of course. Think about King David. He literally has people behind his bus that have been killed. He's a murderer. God uses King David. But think of Jonah. Jonah we got to preach through that book here before too long because Jonah's beautiful. You've got a prophet who knows God, who God says, go tell these pagans about me. And Jonah says, no. God says, well, good luck with that. He puts them out. He sends them. Jonah walks in to the pagan Assyrians, and they are wicked people. It's like ISIS-level bad, what they're doing in Assyria to all the world, including God's chosen people. Jonah walks into Assyria, and he looks around, and he gives the worst gospel presentation you've ever heard in your life. I mean, it's almost like he just barely mutters under his breath, everybody needs to repent or else God is going to judge you. And it like, takes 10 seconds for him to give his gospel proclamation, and God uses that small thing to humble the whole whole countryside and the end of Jonah of course Jonah's on a he's mad I want you to do to to this place what you did to Sodom and Gomorrah despite all of Jonah's issues God uses Jonah to bring mercy to those Assyrians it's not just David it's not just Abraham it's not just Jonah man it's Peter in the New Testament like that cat keeps messing up all the time God uses Peter despite his sin in fact Paul has to confront him later on Say, hey, buddy, you're doing this thing wrong. You're not even believing the gospel anymore. Paul himself killed Christians. God's plan won't be thwarted by your sin. And be encouraged. God is not waiting for you to arrive. He is not waiting for me to arrive before he will use us. Can I get a hallelujah? Frankly, based on Genesis 20, it looks to me like you can be just totally out to lunch in your walk with God. You can be in here, you haven't heard a thing I said. You don't give a rip about what's happening in God's word. You can be so out to lunch and God still can use you because your sin can't thwart God's promises. God's plans are so powerful, your sin can't thwart them. Which brings us back to where we started with devastating sin. Whether you're the person that's guilty of devastating sin and it's your issues that have swept over everybody else or whether it's somebody else's sin that is swept over you. It's plans won't be thwarted. And sin doesn't have the final word in this chapter, and it doesn't have to have the final word in the chapter of your life, either. And it didn't have the final chapter in the word of my buddy's life, who realized, man, this pastor baptized me. But my baptism and my profession of faith isn't bound up in His holiness, my baptism profession of faith is bound up in what Jesus has done for me. And no matter how bad God's people may sin, and no matter how awful God's people may may seem to make the Christian life work, I don't have confidence in, in salvation because of how everybody else acts. I have confidence in salvation because of who God is and what baptism represents, belief in the gospel. And my friend who so deeply struggled with same-sex attraction, devastating sin didn't have the last word in that family's life either. Oh, it was hard. Sin was brought out into light. But there was grace and gospel clarity brought to this situation. And it helped so many realize there's no sin that is... So far outside the realm of what we may consider acceptable sins in the church that God doesn't save. And, and nobody can out the cross. At the cross, the foot of the cross is level. So whatever issues you're bringing, that guy's bringing, I'm bringing, gospel will heal it. And We said a long time ago, all of us are guilty of some sexual sin in this room. If you're here and you're like, I've never committed a sexual sin in my life, baloney. Give me five minutes in honesty. Everybody here has been guilty of some sexual sin. Not that different sexual sins don't have different consequences, but everybody's guilty of sexual sin, and the gospel speaks to all of it. And this dear family, God's grace has extended them, and they are extending God's grace to others, for in fact... As soon as they started talking about it, there's other people who came out and said, oh, me too, oh, me too, but I didn't think we could actually talk about that sort of stuff at a church, and I didn't actually think that the cross would would save me. I thought I was probably out on my own. No, in fact, God has used that family around the nation. As we're so sexually confused in this day and age, folks don't know what to do. Lord is able to use that family to bring grace to many. If you're here and you're wondering, does devastating sin have to be the last word in your book. I got good news for you. It's not the last word in this book, and it's not the last word in this chapter. From the most important chapter of the most important book, we find that devastating sin doesn't have the last word in the life of Jesus. If you want to go to the most devastating sin in the world, it's not something you've done. It's not something Abraham did. It's not something somebody did against you, as devastating as that might feel. The most devastating of sin of all time occurred at the cross, where we find Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, murdered. You want to talk about a sin tsunami that changed everything? Jesus Christ at the cross is Crucified, but was his crucifixion the last word? No. For while in our text, Abimelech in his dream said to God, Please, judge me based on my innocence at the cross. Jesus said, Please, protect them because of my innocence and judge me. In our text, God said to Abimelech, you're a dead man because of your mistake. And on the cross, Jesus said, make me the dead man because of their mistake. And at the cross, God proved once and for all, he can take anything awful and make something beautiful out of it. Sin won't thwart God's promises. For any in here you've been walking with God for decades, and you're sensitive that you are still guilty of serious sin, take heart, you're in the club with Abraham, and sin won't thwart God's promises. For any in here who are guilty of repeated sins, like a dog returning to its vomit, that's what you're doing, that's from Proverbs, take heart, you're in the same club of Abraham, and your repeated sin won't thwart God's promises. To any any here who don't yet know Jesus, you came in as a good pagan thinking, I'm pretty good, man, I'm a lot better than some of you Christians, and you may be right. Believe me, even though you're a pretty good pagan, your good works will not avert the ultimate justice of God. And while you may even be just like King Abimelech, you need to know that salvation is only found in Christ. Repent and believe your sins won't thwart God's promises. To all the rest of us who might be weary, worn out, exhausted as we aim to walk with the Lord and find ourselves beat up, misunderstood, judged, and exhausted, know this, your sin can't thwart God's promises. And he's going to accomplish his will no matter what. Will you pray with me? Now, Lord, I pray by the power of your spirit, you would take this truth and drill it deep in our hearts so that we may know and live out of the truth that our sin can't thwart your promises. Holy Spirit, if anybody in here doesn't know you yet, move in power right now. Do what only you can do. Save. All God's people said, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.